And welcome again for anyone who's just uh, arrived recently. Thanks for being here with us. You know, as we kind of begin here this morning, this afternoon, who would have guessed that we would be here like this at this kind of a time? You know, we've been removed from our rental building now. Um, Some of our businesses have been ordered to operate at 15% capacity or even close. We're supposed to wear a face mask in every public place. And we're no longer permitted by the government to meet with anyone outside of our own families, whether indoors or out of doors. Even in the privacy of our own homes, we're being told not to socialize. Churches aren't exempt from these dictates either. You are only permitted to operate at 15% of the building capacity. Masks are mandatory. They're required. And we've been told that we should not sing unless absolutely necessary. We're to leave immediately after the service. No socializing permitted. No love feasts allowed. And to put it in the kind of historic Christian way, today we would say no potlucks allowed, no meals together. And all of this is in the name of public health. All of this is because of the coronavirus, COVID-19. Now, what are we to think about all this? right? What are we as individual Christians, as churches, what are we to think about all of what's going on? What, what are we to do when the government tells us to shut down? What is the Christian response, if there even is a Christian response, right? What What is the right thing to do? These are important questions right now for us. And I, I think each and every one of us have been wrestling with this over over the last number of months. You know, throughout the pandemic, at least as they call it, this pandemic, I, I've largely ignored the whole question, at least in in the public sphere. I, I've hardly said anything about it, except for the, the very first Sunday when we live streamed from, from my kitchen. Uh, I, I did kind of say a little bit about it then, but uh, I did that with very few exceptions to kind of model at least part of what our response should be. You see, our focus as believers is not this world. Our focus is the Word of God. The Christian isn't so much focused on politics or the economy, on health, or what's happening in the world. Those are all really important things, and and we're aware of them, and we do care about what's going on in this world, but they aren't, at least for us, they aren't primary things. The rest of the world is concerned about economics and politics and health because they really have nothing else to look to. We are citizens of heaven living on earth. We are strangers and pilgrims in the world. We're citizens of another kingdom living temporarily on the earth. And because we live here, we're concerned about what's happening, but we also know that the solution to this world's problems is not political. The solution to this world's problems is not economic. The solution to this world's problems isn't social reform. right? As Christians, we know that what is needed is Jesus Christ. The answer to all the world's problems is spiritual. 
You see, we understand what the real problem is. And unless you understand what the real problem is, you can't fix the problem. See, the reason for all of humanity's problems, according to the Bible, is sin. Right? Sickness is in this world because of sin. Death is in this world because of sin. Conflict comes from sin. Poverty flows from sin. All of the world's problems come from sin, and yet the world refuses to acknowledge the problem, and therefore they have no answers to really fix that problem. The solution to all of it is salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ. And this salvation begins on the individual level. People need to hear the good news of how Jesus saves from the penalty and from the power of sin. People must turn from their individual sins and come to Jesus Christ. And this salvation, once we have it, continues to make us live godly, holy lives in the world. See, the Christian increasingly puts off sin and becomes more and more like Jesus Christ in their life. And the final solution to all that is wrong in the world is going to happen when the Lord Jesus Christ returns. Individuals being saved will improve the world, but we're not to expect a full restoration until the Lord Jesus Christ returns. And when He returns, He will destroy the wicked who remain in this world. He will send them to pay for the just penalty for their sins in hell. And He will establish a righteous kingdom over the whole earth which those, who have, those of us who have been saved will inhabit. This kingdom, the Scripture tells us, will last for a thousand years and then God will make a new heavens and a new earth where we as believers will dwell forever with God. Only the coming of Jesus Christ and the final eradication of all sin from the world will save the world's problems. And so through most of the past few months, I've, I've largely just ignored everything that was happening and just continued to preach the Word through Matthew. At least that's been really the, the public response. In public, I've ignored the whole thing except for really guiding our church through the different decisions that we've had to make through this whole thing. But privately, I've been doing a lot of reading, a lot of studying, a lot of thinking about what is a biblical response to this kind of a situation? What does the Bible actually say? And I've been listening to other church leaders in, in North America that, that have been kind of leading the way on what is the biblical response to these things. But with everything that happened from the government, from Jason Kenney's last two announcements, I decided that this week we should really talk about it, especially as we're now here in a different building and kind of everything's been a little bit kind of thrown into like, what are we going to do this week? I thought now I should really take a little bit of extra time and we should talk about these things. I studied more thoroughly this week. I, I especially studied Romans 13, 1-7 and the relationship between the church and the state and the, the historic Christian position to such matters. You see, as Christians, we feel a conflict that the world probably does not. Right In a time like this, I think as Christians, we feel a greater conflict than the world does. 
Because we have on the one hand a sense of our radical commitment to God and to Christ. This is number one in your outline if you're, if you're taking notes this morning. We are, as Christians, we are devoted to obeying God for His glory. Right? Christians are those who have seen the beauty and the worth of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have come to Him for salvation. We have given our lives to Him. And we have committed to living our lives for His sake. Right? We are those who live for His glory. We live for His praise. We live that everyone might see His value, His majesty, His greatness. And the way that we live for Him is by living according to His Word. We obey His commandments. We believe His promises. We follow His example. We heed His warnings. We forsake the sins that He warns us about. We turn from them and and look to be more and more like Him in our actual lives. And we know that we glorify Him by living according to His Word. And so we make it a priority as believers then to hear the Word of God. We want to be renewed in the spirit of our minds, Ephesians 4.23. We want to be transformed by the renewal of our mind, Romans chapter 12 and verse 1. According to Colossians 3.10, the new self is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its Creator. And so true Christianity requires that we be transformed by the work of the Holy Spirit, and we know that that happens through the truth of Scripture. We are renewed by the Truth affecting our mind by truth enlightening our mind. And because our worship of God is tied to this growing through the Word, we put a high priority on hearing the Word of God preached, on hearing the Word of God teached, taught. And we're commanded by God to come together and hear the Word preached and taught. We're commanded to come together to serve one another, to live life together, to use our spiritual gifts in one another's lives. You see, as the Word transforms us, we become encouragements to each other. And we reflect Christ to each other. My growth spurs you on to holiness, and and your growth spurs me on. Scripture calls this mutual encouragement edification. Another translation of that word edification is to to build up. We're to build one another up. And the process that edifies or builds others up is called fellowship. We are called to have fellowship with one another, mutual edification. We're we're called to impact one another with our lives, with the the Christ-likeness of our lives and with the different spiritual giftings and talents and abilities that we have, we're called to impact one another and encourage one another in our growth towards Christ-likeness. Christianity requires Christians to interact with one another. That's part of how we grow to be like Christ and that's part of how we glorify God with our lives. And one of the best places 
to really show you this is in the book of Ephesians. And so turn with me to Ephesians. We'll start in chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19. Paul says there, So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In Him you also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. In Him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And so if you are a Christian, you are not separate from God. You are not strangers and aliens. You have access to God through Christ by the Holy Spirit. Just just look at the verse before that, verse 18, for through Him, that is through Jesus Christ and the salvation that we have in Him, through Him, we both, that is Jews and Gentiles, have access in one Spirit to the Father. And so through Christ, we have access to the Father by the Holy Spirit. And so we're not strangers and aliens. We're fellow citizens with the saints. We are Members of God's household, that is, we, brothers and sisters, believers in Christ, we are family. We've been built on the apostles and the prophets, that foundation that they laid continues through the writings of the Old and New Testament. And Paul is picturing us then as believers as a a building, and Christ is the cornerstone of that building, and we are being built on Christ through the Word of God. Now in verse 21, it says, in whom, that is, in Christ, this whole structure, every Christian pictured as a building is being joined together. And so there's this ongoing process that's pictured here. The New American Standard translates this being fitted together. The builder, the God as the builder is carefully fitting each piece together to make a building. And that, that shows the, the interaction and closeness that brothers and sisters in Christ have. We're being fitted together as we impact one another's lives and we grow then together into a holy temple in the Lord. In verse 22, in Him also you are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And so we are, we are being built into this dwelling where God will live as we are, as we are being fitted and, and growing together as this temple of the Lord. And we see this emphasis again in, in chapter four. And I, I want to walk you through this passage as well. Look at 411. In verse 11 there, it says that, that he gave, and th- this refers to Christ again. Christ is the one who's in, in, in view here, and he gave certain people as gifts to his church. Verse 11, he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, and the shepherds and teachers. The apostles and prophets were for a short period, and, and through them again, we have the word of God. We have the, the New Testament. Next, we have their evangelists and the 
the shepherds and teachers or the, the shepherd teachers. Shepherds and teachers, that, that word most likely goes together. And so there's these pastors who teach, who have been given by Christ to the church. Evangelists and pastors who teach. And look at what they do in verse 12. It says that they are there to equip the saints for the work of ministry. For the building up the body of Christ. And so these gifts to the church, they equip the saints. And they equip us to do the work of the ministry. Right? Pastors don't do all the work of the ministry alone. That's not what Christianity is all about. Pastors are, and teachers and evangelists are there to equip us as believers to do the work of ministry. And the purpose of the ministry that we all do, that all the saints do, is for the building up the body of Christ. And so we minister to each other to edify one another to build up the church. And this ministry of building up the church continues, look at verse 13, it continues until we all attain the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Now what is the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ? What, what is that? You know, a, a simple way to say that would be until we are all like Christ. Right? This work continues, this work of equipping the saints and saints doing ministry continues until each and every one of us is utterly like Christ in everything that we think, say, and do. Until we are fully like Christ, until we are mature in Him, until we are unified or united in the faith. Now the, the opposite of what verse 13 is saying is there in the next verse, in verse 14, look at that one. It says, so that we may no longer be children, right? Mature, now we're looking at children. Children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine. And so there's this contrast between those who are who have this unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, who are mature, and those who are children tossed to and fro by the waves, carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. And so we need teaching and equipping and ministry to protect us from false doctrine, from human cunning, from deceitful schemes. You see, there's a, a spiritual battle going on, one that, that aims to keep us from growing. Like it says in verse 13, right? To, 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 there's a, a spiritual battle going on that, that aims to rob us of maturity, of unity in the faith, of knowledge of Christ, of, of being like Him in our lives. And Paul later tells us in chapter 6 that the, the craftiness and the deceitful schemes are orchestrated by the devil who doesn't want us to grow to be like Christ in our lives. Now the answer to the danger of being tossed to and fro and being like a child is uh, said another way in verses 15 and 16. Look at that there. It says, rather, right? instead of what we saw in verse 14, rather, speaking the truth in love. We are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ, 
from whom the whole body joined and held together but why by what every joint sorry uh, held together by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love and so by speaking the truth to one another and we do that in love Paul tells us we grow and we grow up in every way and we grow into Him who is the head. We grow into Christ, into Christ-likeness. Now, verse 16 is, is very complex grammatically, but it, it's actually a very simple concept there. Each one of us is to use our gifts, use our abilities to help one another grow. Are you seeing what we're called to here? Are, are, you, are you seeing the the, the working together and how we're in this together so that we can grow to be like Christ, to glorify God. Each believer is called to minister. Each believer is called to be involved in other believers' lives so that through this fellowship, we grow. And through that growth, we become more like Christ. And the more we are like Christ, the more honor and glory we give to God. Now turn then, as we just kind of continue to look at this, and we look at, at, at this devotion that we have to obeying God for His glory, I want you to turn to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2 is, is Peter's sermon, really what we call typically his first sermon. It wasn't his first sermon, but first sermon recorded in the book of Acts. And it's, it's to those people in Jerusalem who were involved in crucifying the Lord Jesus Christ. And he told the crowd that Jesus was their Messiah. He told them that they crucified him and that he, that, that Jesus rose from the dead and that he had sent the Holy Spirit so that Peter and the apostles could be witnesses of salvation through Christ. And if you look at verse 36 then, he says, he kind of closes his sermon. He says, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? In verse 38, Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promises for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to Himself. And with many other words, He bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. And so those who received His word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And so Peter called these people to repent and to be saved from this crooked generation. 3,000 people responded and turned to Christ. And look what, he, look what they did in the next verse in verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And so here's a summary of the very early Christians. They were they were devoted to certain things. Devoted means that they persisted in these things, that they were that they busied themselves with these things, that they were they they gave themselves to these things. 
And the things that they were devoted to are all the things that I've already been showing. They were devoted to teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayer. And they practiced, they, they participated in all of these things together so that they could grow together. They understood that to do these things was what God had called them to do. Acts chapter 3 then after that continues with Peter's next sermon. And John was with him. And then in in Acts chapter 4 and verse 1, look at that. And and as they were speaking to the people, so, so Peter and John speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of men came to about 5,000. Now now notice here, the religious authorities and the, the captain of the temple, they arrest Peter and John. And those religious authorities and the captain of the temple, they have authority over the area where Peter was preaching. And the next day, the authorities asked, look at verse 7, and when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders. And so Peter now tells them that in this next little message that he gives, he tells them that it's by the power and in the name of Jesus that he is doing these things. In verse 11 then, look at that. He's he's preaching there. He says, this Jesus who he's telling them about, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. And so the authorities who had the legal right to arrest them, charged them, told them not to speak or to teach at all in the name of Jesus. And look at how they respond in verse 19. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all were praising God for what had happened. Now, I want you to notice that Peter and John are very respectful here. They recognize that the authorities have the authority to judge, 
but also they recognized that God had given them a commandment. And again, Peter says, I, I just love this response, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. They, they say, in effect, we're going to continue to preach and we're going to continue to speak about these things. And they left there and then they prayed for boldness to continue to preach in the face of the threats. Look at verse 29. They're in the midst of prayer here and they say, And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Now we can skip what happens there in chapter 4 and we can skip down to chapter 5 and verse 17, really skipping the first part of chapter 5. But the high priest rose up and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go and stand in the temple and speak to the, the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Now, this is really interesting here because the authorities, they put the apostles in prison, but the Lord released them from prison by sending an angel. The authority said, don't speak. The angel said, go and speak all the words of this life. The authorities put them in jail. The Lord busted them out of jail. The Lord established those authorities, but the Lord is over those authorities. And so He overrides their authority and He overrules them and He commands them to do something different than what the authorities commanded. And we'll have to remember that as we come into the second part of the sermon. Look, look at verse 25. And someone came and, and told them then, Look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain and the officers went and brought them, but, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. Now, notice here that Peter and John and the apostles, they, they must have willingly come with the guards. Right? They, they weren't forced. Right? They, they didn't use force, but, but Peter and John and the apostles, they did come. Verse 27, when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, we strictly charged you not to teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. And then they preached the gospel to them. And that made the rulers angry. Verse 33, when they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But one of the leaders argued that it's probably best to just leave them alone. Skip down to verse 38. And he, he's concluding his argument. He says, So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. 
So they took his advice, and when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they had been counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. And so the early church devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, and the apostles continued to teach despite threats from the governing authorities. They were submissive to those authorities. They, they received the beatings from them, but they continued to teach and the disciples continued to be taught regardless of the cost. Now let's see the same thing in Hebrews chapter 10. I just really want to press these things home so that we, we really solid on these things. Go to Hebrews chapter 10. Now, Hebrews was written to a, a, a group of Hebrews, and it was written in a time when it had become illegal to be a Christian. Now, Jews were protected under Roman law at that time, but Christianity had now become illegal. And the Hebrews, the, the Christians from a Jewish background, were now being persecuted. And they were tempted to renounce Christ and go back to Judaism, which was now a legal religion, one that would have allowed them to be free from persecution. And so they're tempted to renounce Christ and go back. But the writer of Hebrews, he says, you can't do that. Christ is the fulfillment of the Jewish religion. Without Christ, you have no salvation. And so he says, Christ is the way to God, and he warns them not to turn away from Christ. He urges them to remain faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ, and to do so would mean disobedience to the governing authorities, perhaps even at the cost of death. Now look at what he says in verse 19. He says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain, that is, through His flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, and now he gives three let us statements, three commands in the plural. He says, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. In other words, don't turn from Christ. And then verse 24 and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Now our, our concern today is really with the last let us statement in verse 24. He says, let us consider, let, let us think very carefully about how to stir one another up, how to stir one another up to love 
and good works. And the way to do this is by not neglecting to meet together. It seems that that some, because of the persecution, were now in the habit of, of not going to the gathering. Maybe they were afraid of being persecuted, and so they stopped coming to the fellowship of the saints. And instead of this habit of neglecting the gathering, the author says, instead of that, encourage one another. He says, encourage one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. And of course, the day that's drawing near refers to the day of the Lord, the coming of Christ. And whatever you believe about the end times, we all recognize that the day is nearer than it was when Hebrews was written. Now all that is really the first side of the equation that I wanted to, to, us to consider. Christians have a, a radical commitment to Christ and to God. Christians are devoted to obeying God for His glory. They're devoted to one another. They're devoted to this, this growth that happens through fellowship and ministry together. Right? We want to worship God in singing and, and in praise. We want to worship God in every part of our lives. And we do so by sitting under the teaching of the Word which renews our minds so that the Spirit makes us more like Christ. And that's exactly what the early Christians did. And when what God commanded was in conflict with the governing authorities, they, and listen to this, they submissively obeyed God rather than men. Right? They obeyed God and they submitted to the punishment inflicted by the authorities. They obeyed God and they submitted to the penalty inflicted by man. And this has really been the historic Christian position. They obeyed God and they bore the wrath of man with patience and love for their persecutors. You just look through church history, that's exactly what you see. They, whenever the governing authorities said something other than what Christians are, are called to do in Scripture, they disobeyed the authorities, but they submitted graciously and humbly and patiently to whatever kind of persecution came their way. And as their persecutors persecuted them, they proclaimed the gospel to them. They loved them. They, they cared for those who persecuted them. You see, Jesus taught us that the world would hate us. He said that we would be brought before kings and governors to testify about Him. But today, like I said earlier, I, I think we feel a little bit of conflict, a little bit of, of tension as we considered this because we are committed as Christians to obey God, but we also know as Christians that God commands us to obey our governing authorities. I, I should say God commands us to submit to the governing authorities, to those He has placed in authority over us. Now, Peter and Paul and and really, the whole New Testament are in agreement here, but, but we have difficulty discerning the balance. And so I want to look at the other side of the coin here. We are commanded to submit to governing authorities. That's number two in the outline. And to see this, let's go to Romans 13. So go to Romans 13 with me now. Romans 13, starting in verse 1, says, Let every person 
be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes for the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. And so number two, we are commanded to submit to governing authorities. And that really is the main command in this section, verse 1, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. The main command is be subject to the governing authorities. Every person is to subject themselves to the governing authorities. When we saw our our marriage series, we, we saw that wives are to be subject to their husband's leadership. And that's the same word there, that there's there's this submitting of themselves that the wife is called to do in the home. Right? There's to be order in the home. God made men to lead and, and wives should allow them to lead. Wives should come under the leadership of their husbands. And there's this order that is promoted by God in society as well. Citizens are to come under the authority and under the regulations of the governments in which they live. And so Christians of all people should be subject to the government. Now, Paul is not dealing here with the question of when government commands are in conflict with God's commands, but this is the most really thorough portion of Scripture on the government and the Christian. Now, the the word there to submit is very close to to obey. But obey is a stronger word. but, But even still, the idea of submitting means to follow their lead, to accept their commandments, and if you can't do that, then submit to their penalties. That is the command. Be subject. And now Paul gives a a series of reasons why we should be subject. And so why should we be subject to the governing authorities? Well, Paul says, first of all, because authority comes from God. Look at verse 1, second half there. He says, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Whatever authority exists, it exists because God put them there. God is in control of every authority on earth, even the the ones that are hostile to His church and to His people. They have been instituted by God. And so authority comes from God. That's why we should obey. Second, therefore, to resist the authorities is to resist God. Verse 2, therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists God or resists what God has appointed. Resisting government is resisting God. 
And Paul gives really no exceptions here, but but seeing that he himself was often imprisoned and beaten for his commitment to Christ, he does make exceptions in his life, right? If he would have given in to the governing authorities, he would have never been beaten or persecuted. But he recognizes that to resist the authority is to resist what God has appointed. So to resist the authorities is to resist resist God. Third, in the second part of verse 2, resisting authorities will bring judgment. And so he says, and those who resist will incur judgment. If you break the law and if you get caught, you will rightly pay the penalty for your sin. You will incur judgment. The fourth reason to, to submit is that rulers are from God to punish evil and to praise good. And we see that in verses 3 and 4. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. And so if you do good, there's typically nothing to fear from the government. If you do what they say, they will not bother you. But if you break the law, that's when they become a terror. God has given them the power of the sword. Government was appointed by God to avenge the wrongdoers. And notice that that Paul here is giving the purpose of the government. He doesn't say, what kind of government it should be, a republic, a democracy, a dictatorship, but, but rulers in whatever form, their purpose is to punish evil and to reward good. Here's what God has ordained the government to do. They're to restrain sinful man from evil by bearing the sword. And as such, government in that capacity, when government restrains evil and promotes good, government serves God. Those who serve in law enforcement, they serve God in that capacity, whether they are believers or not. As, as agents of the government in restraining evil and promoting good, law enforcement serves God. They're ministers of God. God has instituted governing authorities for this purpose. But when they go outside of what a God has appointed for them, they sin against God. Because the government's sphere of authority is limited. They have authority over society at large, but they go beyond their God-given bounds when they dictate issues of conscience or issues of worship. God has given governing authorities authority in the civil sphere, but God Himself is the Lord of the conscience and God Himself is the Lord of the church. And so government should never dictate, a a righteous government should never dictate matters of conscience. The government should never have the authority to tell me to wear a red shirt or certain kind of pants or certain kind of clothes or certain kind of thing over my face. The government doesn't have authority in our worship either. The government is never in Scripture told to tell the church what they should do or how they should worship God. That is the sphere of the church. And so the individual conscience and then the sphere of the church, those are areas 
where the government, a righteous government, doesn't have authority. According to Scripture, the government should never be able to finish this sentence, you can worship if, and then fill in the blank. That is stepping outside of the government's authority. And that's why a number of times in Scripture, we see God's blessing on people who disobey the government. And so in Exodus chapter 1, verses 17 to 21, I'm not going to read it, but you can go and look at that yourselves. The Egyptian midwives were blessed by God for disobeying Pharaoh. They didn't kill the Hebrew women as Pharaoh commanded. They disobeyed his command and they were blessed by God. We see a similar thing in Daniel chapter 1, right? Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they respectfully refused to eat the Babylonian food. They believed in their conscience that to do so would be to violate God's law. And so they submissively, get this, they submissively disobeyed and a way was made for them to do so legally in God's goodness to them. Later in Daniel chapter 3, Nebuchadnezzar commanded those same three Hebrews to worship his golden statue. Listen to their response. This is from Daniel 3.14. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you are ready, if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, tigron, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of instrument to fall down and worship the image I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall be immediately cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is a God who will deliver you out of my hands? And listen to what they reply in verse 16, Daniel 3.16, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image you have set up. In chapter 6, Daniel himself was thrown into the lion's den for continuing to pray when the government said that he shouldn't do so. And so those are some, some scriptural examples of obeying God and not men. God wants us to obey the government, but, but not over our own conscience and not instead of Him. God has appointed government and God is over the government. And so when God steps out of it, when, when the government steps out of its bounds, and, and when the government is out of line, we need not submit to that. Let's go back then to Romans 13. You're probably still there. I just want to say a little bit more about Romans 13 and then I'll speak more directly to the current situation. So the, the fifth reason then in Romans 13 to obey it's in verse 5. It's, it's conscience. And, and, and Paul says there, therefore, because of everything that I said before, therefore one must be in, in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. And what this means is that, that when we obey, 
as those who recognize God and government, we are, we are obeying God who is behind the government, right? Uh, unbelievers obey because they don't want to suffer the consequences. They, they, they don't want to suffer the consequences of disobeying the law, but, but believers believe, obey the government and follow the government in most situations for a higher reason because we recognize that government has been assigned by God. That's what he means by conscience there. Peter says it this way. Peter says that we are to be subject to the government for the Lord's sake. And that's kind of the same idea what Paul means here by for the sake of conscience. It's, we're, we're doing this for the Lord because we recognize that, that God has established the government that He's placed over us. And so Christians should really be the best citizens of all because we obey not just because we're afraid of wrath and punishment, but we obey because we recognize that the government is a servant of God for our good. The sixth reason to be subject is because your tax money pays for all of this. We pay taxes to provide for this important work that governments do. And so Christians should be at least somewhat joyful to pay taxes because we recognize that government does function in a, in a good role in society by restraining evil and by promoting good. And so we pay taxes to cover this important work that government does. Verse 6, For because of this you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. And so Paul says, Pay to all what is owed them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. And so to summarize what we've seen so far, first of all, Christians obey God. Christians want to grow to be like Christ. They serve one another to help each other grow. And this is a part of our worship. But secondly, Christians recognize the role of government in the world. Obeying government in the most cases is obeying God. But when government tries to make us sin or when government tries to make us disobey what God commands, we obey God and we submit to the government punishment. And now the question is then, what should our response be to the current situation? What should our response be to the current situation? Well, I have a number of of thoughts on this, and I want to start by saying this. Just as the government has no authority to bind your conscience, neither does the church. And so I don't have authority to tell you what you should do in this situation, right? This is really for for your personal conscience. How are you going to respond? You need to decide. I have no right to bind your conscience. All I can do is try the best as I can to prevent what's to to present what Scripture teaches. We can teach God's word, but we can't tell you what to do. And so, each person needs to be fully convinced in their own mind. Secondly. Each of us needs to obey our conscience as informed by the Word. See, we are, we are never to go against our conscience, right? If, 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 if to go against your conscience is sin. And so we're to train our conscience by the Word of God, but we're never to go against our conscience. Romans 14.23 says, For whatever is not from faith 
is sin. Whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. And so we're, we need to follow our conscience no matter what side of this issue we land on. Thirdly, when the government makes a law that violates another law, a question comes up, which law are we to obey? Now, I'm not a lawyer here, and I, I'm just telling you what I understand from the current situation, but what, what I'm talking about here is the Charter of Freedoms. And under the Charter of Freedoms, we have freedom to assemble. We have freedom to associate with who we want to associate with. We have freedom to worship according to our religion. And we have freedom to express ourselves however we decide. And when the government makes rules against these freedoms, we are not breaking the law to challenge those freedoms. We are within our legal rights to assemble for worship, to meet in, in someone's home for fellowship. And the government is the one who has to prove in court that they are not violating the Charter of Rights. In other words, it could very well be that we are still submitting to the government law here and the government is the one who is breaking its own laws. Now, again, I'm not a lawyer, but, but that's how I understand the current situation. But fourth... Even if all of these restrictions went to court and the court decided that, that the, the government can mandate all of these things, I believe we would still be within our rights before God to disobey submissively. And let me give you two reasons for that. And the first one, I need to say, first of all, I am not a doctor. So I am not a doctor and I am not a lawyer. But COVID, from what I can see, is not what the government and the media are making it out to be. If this pandemic was a, a legitimate pandemic according to the government standards of what a pandemic was, I believe that I would fully support drastic but temporary measures to stop the spread of the disease. The way that the, the media and the, and the government presents this is like, like everyone is dying left, right, and center. You know, the other day, 13 people died from COVID. And it's kind of said like that. And you go, wow, 13 people in Alberta died from COVID. But do you know that 74 people on average die every day in Alberta? And when I say people died from COVID, I, I probably should more rightly say people died with COVID. And again, 74 people die every day in this province on average. More people are not dying in Alberta right now than normally die. In fact, the government's own information shows that the shutdown has been more harmful than the virus. Now, I'm not a doctor, but I can do some simple math and, and the numbers just don't add up. You know, I met with all of the pastors from the Lacrete area this week, all of the evangelical pastors, or at least a good number of them. And I asked them, I said, how has it been in your church? Has there been a whole bunch of sick people? And they said, yeah, just like it was at our church. There was a lot of sick people and almost everyone recovered. And in that group, nobody had died in any of those churches. And I think if I remember right, only one gentleman was put on a respirator. See, over 99% of people recover from this virus. And I think many of you have had the virus and have recovered and are doing well. 
Now let me say also that masks don't stop a virus. Viruses are are too small for a mask to protect you and you're more likely to get the virus by touching your mask and then and then getting the virus on your mask and then breathing it in through your mask when it's sitting on there all day long. And so you're you're more likely I in my opinion in my research to get sick from wearing a dirty mask on your face all day and all of the bacteria that gathers in there. Now, everything that I've seen, and I have seen arguments both ways, but everything I've seen shows that the science doesn't support wearing masks. And so why are we wearing masks? What is the deal with the masks? And I think, and again, this is my opinion, and I can't bind your conscience to this, but I think that masks are a form of control. They want to train us to mindlessly obey the government regardless of any science or information. And so that's the first reason why I think even if the government makes this a law, I think we need to discern, is it right? Are these responses right? And we have to follow our own conscience. In other words, for this virus, should I give up everything that the Lord has told me about the importance of fellowship, the importance of teaching, the importance of being with other believers. And I would say, in my conscience, no. God's Word and the things that God says, that is far more important. But number two, I would say this, that the government has stepped out of its God-given sphere by shutting down our businesses, by dictating how we worship, and by making us cover our faces. Now, just just think about this, brothers. We are not even allowed to invite a family over for supper in our own private residences. And if that isn't tyranny, then what is? Tyranny is cruel, oppressive rule or control. And when healthy, consenting people are not allowed to visit one another in their own homes then I say the government has gone too far. And when government tells us that we need to cover our face to worship God, then I say they will answer to God about their dictates. You see, brethren, uh, and I give you freedom to disagree with me again. I give you freedom to disagree. These are difficult questions, and each of us needs to kind of answer these questions for our own selves. But I say our fellowship and our worship is much too important for us to obey these mandates. I say that the government has gone beyond its God-given authority and is restricting too much, especially since most of us have had the virus and recovered from COVID. And so I believe it is our duty to continue to work. I believe that it's our duty to continue to resist this tyranny I say it's our duty to continue to fellowship, to worship, to grow in Christ by being devoted to teaching Scripture, to fellowship, to breaking bread, and to prayer. I say it's our duty to obey God, to resist tyranny, and to submit to whatever they decide to do to us. If the governing authorities persecute us for this stance, then we will respectively and submissively accept whatever punishment they deem necessary once it has been decided by the Supreme Court. That's how the saints before us would have handled this. 
And by God's grace, we will follow their path. Let's pray. Father, these are difficult things for us. But we thank You for the salvation that You have given us in Christ. We thank You that You have reconciled us to Yourself through Your Son and that You have allowed us to have Your Word to be conformed to the image of Christ, to influence one another, to minister in this world so that people would come to salvation in Christ and grow to be like Him, so that enemies of God would be made into friends of God and worshipers of God. And we pray, Lord, that You would help us to be faithful to this thing. We pray that You would help us to obey You and to submit to our government. We pray that You would give us wisdom in in our individual families as we think about how to handle this situation. And we pray that You would be glorified by our response and that You would help us, whatever kind of persecution comes our way, that You would help us to submissively be obedient to You. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.